Heavenly Father, you are the Lord who occupies eternity. You know the beginning from the end. There's nothing that escapes you. You know every moment that has ever been, that is happening at this very moment and will take place in the future. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as you tear away the veil and we begin with that brief glimpse into the future, that, Lord, we will see what we need to see. As difficult as it is for me to pray this prayer, Lord, I pray that you would would reveal to us all that you would have us know and that you would conceal from us that which we have no business knowing at all. And in the end, Lord, we pray that we would honor you and that we would glorify you. As we look to the author and the finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 11 where we left off in verse 36, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Are are the lights on up here? I'm going to start over because I feel like I'm in the dark here. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses, with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries overwhelm them and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all of the precious things of Egypt also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels but news from the east and the north shall trouble him therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many and he shall plant the tents of his palace 
between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. In chapter 11 of the book of Daniel, we have seen the historical type and picture of Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember, we've seen a series of rulers in the north, Syrian rulers, Egyptian rulers in the south, the Ptolemies. But now in this passage, we almost like Star Trek, we go through a wormhole. We go into hyper-warp drive and we're transported to sometime in the future. There is a leap that takes place between verse 35 and 36. And this is not unfamiliar territory because this has already happened once before in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, when we talked about the 70 weeks of Daniel, that between the 69th week and the 70th week, there was a, a, a period of time, if you will, that separated those weeks. And like I shared with you before, um, there is no known historical sequence corresponding to that which is laid out in these verses. Antiochus Epiphanes IV is killed somewhere in Persia in December of 164. And so many interpreters of Daniel consider this section containing a reference to some time that's taking place in the future. And so what about Daniel's distant vision? Has that distant vision finally caught up with us when he has this vision in the 5th century B.C.? Now 500 years went by to the time of Jesus, and now we've marched forward 2,000 years. So how close are we to these things that Daniel is talking about? Has his vision finally caught up with us? Are we now on the very precipice, the edge of the end of human history? Now, people who have studied the book of Daniel for many, many generations have considered who this Antichrist is. One of the earliest candidates was the Emperor Nero. After the death of Nero, the next candidates became the next four emperors in quick succession over 18 months. Quickly, Otho became a candidate. Galba became a candidate. Vespasian became a, a candidate. Vitellius became a candidate. Vespasian's sons, Titus and Domitian, became candidates. And as we walk through history and we come to the time of the Reformation, the Roman Pope became a candidate. As we continue to march through history, Napoleon became a candidate. Hitler became a candidate. Mussolini became a candidate. Of recent years, Clinton was a candidate. And that's when Bible scholars were completely disappointed. No, I'm just teasing. You know, you just expect something more from the Antichrist. Every major president has been a candidate. Every evil ruler has been a candidate. But you know who has never seems to be a candidate? When people are asked the question, who do you think the Antichrist is? You know what is the, one of the very few responses I've ever heard? I am. I've never heard a person go, I think I might be the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, there was a, a, a guy who, uh, I don't know if you ever saw this stupid movie called The Omen. 
but there was a character in this movie, and his last name was, um, like, I think it was Damien Thorne or something like that. And there was this poor kid who had that exact same name. And it really bugged him because he's watching this movie, and he, he asked the question, am I the Antichrist? And so here he, he came up with a simple quiz to determine if you are, in fact, the Antichrist. It's a self-test. Number one, here's the first one. On average, how many crosses do you burn each day? And then it's fill in the blank. And then the second question, have you ever been blinded by a cross or another religious image? And he's got yes or no. Check the box. He said, does holy water make you fizz and moan? I'm melting. Number four, do you cheer for the demon at monster movies? Yes or no? Number five, do you work at Microsoft or America Online? Number six, when you multiply this question by 111, do you like what you see? And number seven, check all the following items that interest you. Pride, wrath, sloth. Avarice, greed, lust, Windows Vista, envy, gluttony. You know what's interesting about that little self-test? It is that the Bible seems far more preoccupied with the personality of the Antichrist than with the identity of the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, in this particular passage, as we begin to unfold not the identity of the Antichrist, but the personality of the Antichrist, three things come to the forefront. The first is the quest for autonomy. The second is with autonomy comes inevitable blasphemy and then crimes against humanity. And finally, we see in this passage the supremacy of the doctrine that might makes right because even though the Antichrist seems to not only not believe in any God, as a matter of fact, exalt himself as God, but that he seems to embrace a God in this passage called the God of Fortresses. So what do we think about this and how are we to think about this? You know, Paul in the New Testament was profoundly aware of Daniel's prophecies. You know that, right? Paul, the Pharisee, Paul, the religious leader, the Paul, the one who grew up as an observant Jew, would have been completely aware of the writings of Daniel. And he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Why is that important for you? Because Paul makes it abundantly clear that the identity of the, of, of the Antichrist was not known. There's something peculiar 
particularly among Christians. It's been my experience that Christians want to know that which the Bible forbids them to know. I want to know when Jesus is coming. Uh, Sorry. No one knows the day or the hour. But I want to know. Sorry. I want to know the identity of the Antichrist. Sorry. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the identity of the Antichrist takes place not on the other side of prophecy, but on the other side of history, because let no one deceive you, for that day will not come unless the falling away takes takes place first. And I've got bad news for you. If the identity of the Antichrist is revealed, it probably means you're here, and that's not good. That's bad. That's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Because once the identity of the Antichrist is revealed, you are going to find yourself on the other side of grace, entering into judgment and the blasphemies. It begins with the man of sin's blasphemies in verse 36. And the blasphemies of the Antichrist begin with what looks like some clear religious policies or a religious agenda. Now, again, with with this, it begins with the autonomy, the quest for autonomy. In verse 36, read it for yourself again. Then the king shall do according to his own will. Again, what's happening in the, in the text is we've been talking about a king, Antiochus Epiphanes, but for whatever reason, he doesn't fit the bill for this. The other king seems to be a type, a picture, a representative, but whoever this king is, he is the willful king. He is the king who opposes and exalts himself. This is the one who's called the man of sin by Paul. This is the one who's called the son of perdition by Paul. It says, then the king shall do according to his own will. And that becomes the very definition of the Antichrist. The king that does that which is according to his own will, the type and the picture and the message that is being given is that this is a type of king who lives quite apart from dependence upon the true and the living God. This king, the number one attribute of this king is autonomy, separation from the true and the living God. And by the way, each and every person lives in humility and dependence upon the true king of the universe or in autonomy and independence from the true king of the universe. And so the very first characteristic of the Antichrist is not only that he denies Jesus Christ, but he denies God. You see, the Antichrist is Certainly, John writes in the New Testament that that the Antichrist is coming, but there are many Antichrists even now. And remember, the Antichrist isn't like antipasto. It's, you know, just the meal that comes before the dinner. 
the Antichrist is that which opposes and stands in opposition to the true Christ, to the real Christ. And so then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself, not just above every human being, but above every God, and shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined. Look look at the note that the angel gives to the to the prophet Daniel, for what has been determined shall be done. You know what that means? That there is a sense in which the future is unalterable. That the plan of God must be accomplished. Remember, we've already talked about that. The future will unfold exactly as God has has determined it. And when it says, for that which has been determined shall be done, for the Bible student, for the person who is thinking about the Bible and, and you're opening up the Bible and you're wondering exactly what, how you're to think about what you're looking at, the real question that the Bible student should ask is, what has God determined? what we know for sure. God determined that Jesus Christ, the Lord and the Savior, would come on the planet Earth. God has determined that wicked men would crucify Him. God has determined that He would be raised from the dead. God has determined that the gospel would be preached in the four corners of the world and that the gospel would be accepted by some and rejected by others. And in the course of that accepting, and in the course of rejecting, there would be two kinds of people. Not the Italian people and the people who wish they were, not that one. The two kinds of people would be those who, in humility and dependence, would cry out to God and God's Messiah. And those that would reject God and God's Messiah. And note what it says in verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now, there is a sense in which the references certainly would have some application to Antiochus Epiphanes. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, If this is a clue concerning the identity of the Antichrist, what do we take from that? What kind of a clue is being offered to us? He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. For some Bible scholars, they've taken this to mean that the Antichrist will be a Jewish person. Because the God of his fathers is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language which almost always seems to speak of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. One of two things is obviously true. The Antichrist will either be a Jew or he will be a Gentile. Yeah, you don't have to be a genius to figure that one out. He's going to be one or the other. 
But in that profound autonomy, in that profound separation, in his abandonment of the historical circumstances, whoever he happens to be, he will abandon because he's going to experience such radical autonomy and independence from God. He's going to reject the God of his fathers. And so we have another clue concerning the personality and the attitude of true antichrists in our midst. These are the people who, in radical independence and separation from God, say, Hey, you know what? I don't want to know the God of the Bible. One of uh, A person who uh, comes to our church regularly, who is now on the mission field and getting ready to go to the mission field in Israel, was telling me that in this radical repatriation of Jews from all over the world, they're going to Israel, and as they're going there, a group of young people, particularly those who have served in the Israeli military, find themselves in a crisis because they're rejecting Judaism, and do you know where they're going? To India! To find themselves to find what's real, to find what's true, so much so that many American missionaries, missionaries and worldwide missionaries who have a heart for and a commitment to reaching Jewish people with the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to minister to Jews, you know where they're going? Not to Israel, but they're going to Bombay and Delhi. Because literally thousands of Jewish people are going there to find themselves. Isn't that interesting? For those who believe that the Antichrist will in fact be a Jew, when they look at that expression, that he will, if you will, where it says, but he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. What does that mean? Does that mean he won't like girls? Now again, different people have come to different conclusions. And let me, give, let me offer you some of the suggestions that have been made. Now you'll remember, you'll remember, you'll remember for the Jewish person who is growing up in a Jewish society, what was the dream of every Jewish girl? That she would be the mother of the Messiah. Remember, there, there was this sense, this sense of expectation that, that the, the desire of women is the idea that observant Jews, because they love the Lord and because they long for God's Messiah to appear, they would like to be the handmaid of the Lord. And so some have suggested that this becomes a type and a picture of if, the, if in fact the Antichrist is is truly a Jewish person that he will reject the notion not only that Jewish women can have the Messiah but he will reject women in general now you'll remember that the true Messiah was offered the kingdoms of this world if he would simply bow down to who that's exactly right what Jesus refused to do Daniel intimates that the Antichrist will gladly do. Jesus sought the glory of God. But the Antichrist will seek the glory of his God. The one the Bible calls the adversary. So what does the desire of women mean? Again, one Bible writer 
way over a hundred years ago. His name G.H. Pember. He wrote these words, and it's a rather lengthy quotation, but I think it's worthy to be quoted in its entirety. He writes, The expression, the desire of women, is placed between two nouns which indubitably refer to concrete gods. It must, therefore, itself designate some individual deity which is more especially sought after by women. And having reached this point, our difficulties are over. The deity intended can be none other than the many-named goddess of nature who has been worshipped and at all times chiefly by women from the earliest ages to our ages or days by pagans and by apostate Christians in every land. She is Beltis or Mylita of the Babylonians, Ishtar of the Assyrians, Ashtar of the Phoenicians, the Queen of Heaven mentioned by Jeremiah, Tanata of the Persians, Isis of the Egyptians, the Xing Mu or the Holy Mother of the Chinese, the Aphrodite of the Greeks, the Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians, Venus of the Romans, Frida of the Scandinavians, Amida with her son Zaka, whom Francis Xavier found established as the goddess of Japan, the woman presented for worship by Strauss, Comte, the Theosophists, and the Virgin Mary by the Eastern and Western Catholics. Unquote. The idea being that the Antichrist will not desire that which has been desired in every age and every generation. But some have suggested that it is, in fact, a statement concerning his own willingness not only to marginalize, but to execute women. In other words, he'll show no sensitivity and no sympathy towards women. You know, when you're a human being, you grow up at least with usually some normal sense of attachment for your mother. But here the idea is that he has no attachments whatsoever. Now I want you to think about this because it brings out the second characteristic of the Antichrist that is so important for us to know. The Antichrist embraces such a radical autonomy that is separation from God that he is willing to humiliate humanity. In other words, as you can imagine, the Antichrist has no sense of loyalty except to himself. He has no sense of loyalty to his own parental religion. And since he has no sense of loyalty he, in his quest for autonomy, he embraces blasphemy and then is willing to commit crimes against humanity. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. The moment that you radically, fundamentally, and completely detach yourself from the God of heaven, you now give yourself the mental, emotional, psychological, and religious ability to execute all of your this is how a Stalin could kill 30 million people. This is how Pol Pot in Cambodia can engage in genocidal acts. This is how Hitler can kill 6 million Jews. Does that become a type and a picture of antichrists in each generation? A radical severing from the God of the Bible. A radical 
embracing of your own agenda and then a willingness to kill anyone who opposes you. And then in verse 38, look what it says. But in their place, that is, in the place of the traditional gods and goddesses, whether it's a Jew, it's the God of heaven, whether it's a Gentile, it's whatever uh, religious construct that he grew up with, but in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. And a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. It is a matter of historical note that Antiochus Epiphanes, having rejected the gods and the goddesses in which he grew up with, and in naming himself as as an own god, his own god, he did in fact have a kind of a romantic relationship with one of the gods in, in the Middle Eastern pantheon. It was the goddess Tichy. That's T-Y-C-H-E. She's represented in coinage from that particular period of wearing a turret. But on the turret is a series of castles, if you will. It's a series of crowns on top of crowns on top of crowns. But they're really not just simply crowns. They're fortresses. And so the idea here, when we ask the question, well, what does that mean? Who or what is the god of fortresses? This is the god of munitions or castles or defenses. Because someone might look at this particular passage and say, well, wait a minute. Earlier it says he's rejected all gods. True. He's made himself to be God. True. Well, what is it that he actually worships according to verse 38? He worships munitions, castles. We might even say defense systems. In other words, the thing that is closest to his heart is military. It's weapons. Weapons. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons that will enhance his ability to carry out his plans. I'm going to suggest to you that one of the notable characteristics of the soon coming Antichrist is that his will be a complete commitment to taking the vast majority of the wealth that he somehow acquires and investing it in the military. And in munitions. And so we go to the man of sin's battles. And in verse 39, look what it says. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and and divide the land for gain. The implication is, thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses. In other words, because he is a a man who has abandoned God, has embraced his own agenda, has has no consideration for humanity whatsoever, because he's invested strongly in the military, he will go into this world and conquer. And he will conquer in such a way that at some point in his career, career, he will enter the glorious land. And the glorious land is always a designation of the holy land, 
of Israel. And look what it says. And he will divide the land for gain. In other words, he's going to consume vast amounts of property and real estate. And then he'll divide it. John Phillips believes, quote, those who support him will be rewarded with wealth and subordinate power, with honor and position. He'll carve up the land of Israel and apportion it to his most trusted followers. Israel itself will be of great importance to him, not simply because of its strategic geographical location at the hinge of three continents, but because it will be the homeland of his universal false religion. Control over an administrative district in Palestine will become a choice political plum. And so this Antichrist, according to some, appears to emerge in a reunified European system, but apparently there is a move that takes place in the midst of chaos towards global governance. And again, Bible scholars are divided whether this becomes a reference to the Russian invasion or the northern invasion that's spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, is this one of many battles or is this the battle, the big one that's spoken of in the Bible as Armageddon? Now, I'm going to suggest something to you. I am going to suggest that there is probably going to be a series of small battles that will take place in the Middle East in the not-too-distant future. Now, I think I'm on pretty good ground because 1948, the Arabs unite to attack the new-found state of Israel. Uh, 1952, attack again. 1956, attack again. 1967, attack again. 1973, attack again. 1981, attack again. Excuse me, 1987, attack again. Wait, 1981, 1987, 1992, 1997, 2004. You don't have to be Nostradamus to figure out there's probably going to be some more battles taking place over there. But here's the point. The point is this place is going to expand and contract several more times before it takes its final identity. And in verse 40, look what it says. At the time of the end, now we're given a clue, a prophetic clue. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Do you know what verse 40 speaks of? Read it again. At the end of the, at the time of the end, we know that this is the Antichrist and this is the end of the age. The king of the south shall attack him. Who is the king of the south? Pardon me? Throughout the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel, the king of the south in every instance has been Egypt. Because what is the land that is directly south of the glorious land? Egypt. So is this Egypt attacking the Antichrist and why would he? I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't simply Egypt but it is Egypt leading a confederation of all things Islamic Arab nation states 
against the Antichrist. Question. Do you think the Muslims are going to do well with a universal dictator who says you can no longer worship Allah and you have to close the doors not only in Kabul and Mosul but you have to close the doors in Mecca and Medina and you have to embrace me as the one and true living God Muslims going to be good with that or not good with that Muslims are not going to be good with that so in verse 40 it says at the end of the time the king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind who's the king of the north Again, throughout the 11th chapter of Daniel, who has been the king of the north? Syria. And the Syrian nations. Now remember, the Syrian nations has extended from the Hellespont in what is now modern Turkey all the way east to the Tigris and the Euphrates River occupying much of what you and I would call Iran and Iraq. So we're talking about Syria. We're talking about Jordan. We're talking about Turkey. We're talking about all of, we're talking about Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Tajikistan, and all of those countries. And look what it says. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through the implication being that the strength, the power, the military might of this end time final king will be such that he will subdue both the north and the south. He will be able to do what Antiochus and Ptolemy failed to do throughout the many circumstances of the many wars that have taken place in the final end. There will be a united coalition if you will, that takes place in that particular area and it would appear that he's unstoppable. And in verse 41 it says, he shall also enter the glorious land. Now again, what is the glorious land? It's the land of Israel. You know what's really interesting about reading this particular passage and asking yourself this question. Should I interpret what I'm reading literally? Should I interpret what I'm reading metaphorically or symbolically? And I'm going to suggest to you that anything other than a literal rendering makes no sense. He shall also enter the glorious land. Now again, I don't mean to be rude or disrespectful. Is there any way that with the, with the idea that the average reader is left with the impression that the glorious land is Utah. No, you laugh just because of the absurdity of that. Does it sound like New York or Naboo? Does it sound like Italy or Malta? The only thing that seems to make sense is the land of Israel. And look what it says. And many countries shall be overthrown. Jordan, Turkey, Syria, or at least, excuse me, Lebanon, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, Ethiopia, Tunisia. But look what it says. But, and many shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, 
and the prominent people of Amman. Who knows where that is geographically? It's the Jordan. It's the other side of the Jordan River. It's the modern nation state of Jordan. This is the place that the ancient peoples occupied were called the Edomites in what is or the Nabataeans. This is in the in the area that you and I know as the area of the rock city of Petra. And what is the capital of Jordan? Amman. How is it possible that the Antichrist seizes control of Israel, the surrounding states, but the modern nation state of Jordan or the future state of that particular area somehow escapes his control? I'm going to suggest something to you that might sound shocking. Three of the most bitter enemies in all of Israeli history has been Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Over and over again, they have been represented as a people who come against Israel. Could it be that the reason why the Antichrist leaves them alone because Edom, Moab, and Ammon are already clearly, solidly, permanently in the hand of this future Antichrist? So he doesn't have to overcome them. And look at verse 42. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Apparently, in this circumstance, he goes to the mouth of the Nile. He captures the country of Egypt and then he begins to plunder it for all of its wealth, all of the all of the agricultural wealth, all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the antiquities. It becomes the permanent possession of this future king. And the countries begin to fall like dominoes. And Egypt... And I guess here's the question I would ask. Does he invade Egypt or does Egypt invade him? I'm going to tell you what I think the answer is. You know what? Here's been my experience. When people speak dogmatically about some of these issues, you can almost guarantee that they have no idea what they're talking about. Again, here's part of the challenge that we have. To know what can be known, to embrace that which has been revealed, but to be content that there are certain issues that God has left concealed. But whatever this means, it would appear that Egypt falls. It collapses under the weight of this last end time king. And in verse 43 it says he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt into also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. It looks like in this global governance bid, the north falls, the south falls, and the globalization begins to take place as North Africa gets swallowed under his, under his control. And then in verse 44 it says, But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. What does this mean? Apparently there's a resistance from the east and the north. Rumors begin to circulate. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions, okay? 
if the headquarters of the Antichrist at that particular moment is somewhere in the European continent, it could be that the rumors from the east and the north is the Middle East itself. As a matter of fact, that's the position of Dr. Leon Wood, who is a great biblical scholar. The resistance is such that it brings about the wrath of the Antichrist, and he's going to embark on a campaign of mass destruction. The resistance will bring about the rage of the Antichrist, and in this rage, it marks quite literally the beginning of the end of humanity as we understand it. Now, if for whatever reason the headquarters are not in Europe, but he has already established a headquarters in the Middle East, it could be that the rumors from the East and the North are talking about India, Pakistan, China, Japan. Now, there's an interesting statement that's made in the book of Revelation, chapter 9, verse 16. Most of you are familiar with it. Remember where it talks about the number of an army that comes from the east with 200 million soldiers. Even in a cataclysmic circumstance that begins to unfold as the human race meets its final demise as human beings gather against God and reject God. Is it possible that between India and China, even if they lost half of their population, could they mount an army with 200 million people? You know, elsewhere it also talks about the river Euphrates drying up and then the armies coming from the east. Can you imagine what would happen with the technology of Korea and Japan coupled with the manpower of China and the rumors begin to fly and the people in the East say, we're like the Muslims, we're going to resist this particular person. And so again, whatever the resistance is and however it takes place, look what it says. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many detached from God, committed to his own agenda. Human beings become just something that is disposable as far as he's concerned. And perhaps like a blur, all of a sudden we move prophetically into that last great battle. Look what it says in verse 45. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. That's the prophetic picture. How do you stop that which seems unstoppable? The Antichrist will pitch his palace tent somewhere between the oceans of the Mediterranean and the glorious holy mountain. What do you suppose the glorious holy mountain is? It's Zion. It's Jerusalem. Yet, look what it says, yet he shall come to his end and no one will be will help him. Clearly, here's what the prophecy says. There will be a king. He will be the last great king of humanity. He will, he will exalt himself and oppose God. He will, he will put his will on the human race. But his rule will have a beginning, 
It will have a middle and it will have an end. This is Antichrist's Holy Land headquarters. And that's the final word for the Antichrist as far as Daniel is concerned. No one will help him. And the prophecy moves from his great powers. So it he begins with a description of the great powers of the Antichrist. He moves to the great problems of the Antichrist, to the revenge of the Antichrist, to the rivals of the, of the Antichrist, to the rage of the Antichrist. But then it ends with his ruin. And for the saints, it will look like the Antichrist will be unstoppable, but it won't be true. And by the way, the book of Revelation fills in the details of the demise of Satan's son, the man who apparently is possessed by Satan himself and the Antichrist and his partners in crime against humanity, the false prophet, are eventually cast into the lake of fire. Satan will be incarcerated in God's version of Devil's Island. It's the cosmic netherworld called the Abuso. It's an inescapable pit. And then Jesus... Bible says that Jesus, according to the Bible, will be the one. Now, I want you to think carefully. It would appear that when the eastern armies come and unite with the western armies, the northern and the southern kingdoms have already been overthrown, but apparently they all unite to oppose Jesus. So what's the profile we can sketch? Well, Whoever this person is, he will have the ability to assert his will. He will exalt and malign the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will prosper for a while. He won't regard the God of his fathers. Some have suggested again that, the, that he has no desire for women. He will honor the God of fortresses, that the military. He will be attacked by two southern kings, and he will be attacked by two northern kings. He'll eventually occupy the Holy Land. He'll occupy Egypt. He'll hear terrifying news while in the Holy Land. And he will wage war. And he will eventually be destroyed by the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation, it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw... A beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was a leopard, Greek. His feet were like the feet of a bear, Persian. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, his great authority. And I saw one of the heads as if it were mortally wounded, and the deadly wound is healed, and and fall, and the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority, listen, to continue for 42 months. The reign is going to last. It'll have a beginning, middle, and an end. Three and a half years. Half of the last week left unaddressed in the book of Daniel. I've always thought it interesting that a presidential term is 48 months. 
be the last president of the United States? Interesting question. It says that in the end, mockers and scoffers and doubters will come. Peter talks about this very issue. He again addresses the attitude of Christians. The attitude of Christians isn't to seek the identity of the Antichrist, but the personality. The Antichrist is that person who exalts himself apart from God. He lives in radical isolation from God. He lives in radical promulgation of his own agenda and will. And this is a person who has a complete disregard for humanity. Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 3, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, and then he goes on and he explains, he says, It escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. It's Peter's way of saying, look around. Look everywhere. Look to the left. Look to the right. Look up. Look down. It's all going to go somewhere. Up in smoke. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord is as one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It's not about trying to create a mechanism for old earth or young earth debates. You know what he's trying to do? The whole point of that particular statement is this question. When is the judgment going to come? When is the judgment going to come? When is the judgment going to come? Is it going to come in a day? Or is it going to come in a thousand years? Well, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. In what way? Make no mistake about it. The judgment's coming sooner, sooner than you can imagine. And look what the reason he gives. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and all of its works will be burnt up. The issue that Peter is talking about is you shouldn't sit there and just cry, Oh God, bring the judgment. No, he's saying pray for one more day of grace. Pray for one more day of grace. Because everybody, everybody who needs to be saved isn't saved. There are people who are left who still need to hear the truth about Jesus. Peter writes, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It isn't where you're investing in the History Channel in the hopes of finding out the identity of the Antichrist. Peter makes it clear. The end times and prophecy should have the net result of making you a little bit more godly. 
And if all you do is know a little bit more about the Bible, that's not a bad thing. But that's not the most important thing. Someone once said, and I don't know who the author is, My father's ways may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, but in my heart I'm glad I know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way, though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith. My all on him, he maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far to dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all with him. For by and by, the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. I don't get it. Neither do I. I don't see everything clearly, neither did Paul. He saw through a glass as though darkly. And if it's any comfort to you, sneak ahead just a few verses. Look at Look at chapter 12. Verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn away many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's only two things that will last forever, God's word and human beings. And it's also interesting. Daniel, it says, in verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In the end, it says in verse 8, although I heard, I did not understand. Read that again. Although I heard, I did not understand. What are you saying? I'm saying that Daniel didn't get it all. I don't get I don't get this. Hey, look, I'm okay with that. Daniel didn't get it. I don't get it. I'm I'm feeling pretty good about the whole thing. Because you know what? I don't know everything. But I but what we know we need to affirm. And what we don't know we can speculate about, dream about, talk about, but that's all that it is. What will be must be. What must be? An Antichrist will come. A final king who live, lives in radical defiance and independence from God. Who is he? You know what? That isn't nearly as important to you as your own circumstances of your own heart. Are you living like an antichrist? Are you living in radical independence from God? 
Because if you are, make no mistake about it, in direct proportion to your willingness to to live apart from the living Lord of heaven who has revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will have an effect on the way you treat each other. And typically, the world. No wonder Jesus famously said, and this is how they'll know that you're my disciples, by how you love each other. A person who knows and loves Jesus is radically committed to fulfilling that which Jesus requires, a radical and sacrificial love towards each other. And now we see that the Christian is to live in character antithesis to the Antichrist. He is radically independent from God. We're radically dependent upon God. He exalts himself. We humble ourselves. He treats human beings like they're dirt. We treat people as if they're the most precious commodity that exists. Next week, the final chapter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. It's an interesting world, Lord. Lord, we know that um, these words were penned by Daniel some 2,500 years ago. And in the space of 2,500 years, in the space of 25 centuries, the sun has come up and the sun has gone down. Types and shadows, pictures of people radically opposed to the promises of God and the people of God. They've come, they've gone, and they've disappeared. But, Lord, we know what must be will take place. That you have a plan. And that you must accomplish that plan. And that the world will be deeply divided by those who love you and those who don't. Those who trust you and those who don't. Those who believe in themselves or those who believe in you. Those who rely on you or those who come to rely on themselves. Those who care about the people in this world. And those who only care about themselves. Lord, we pray that we would be numbered with the saints.